Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. Well, thanks for coming out today. Yikes. It's sleeting and snowing and raining. I said to Cindy, I, I'm just not sure if, uh, if I wasn't preaching, if I'd even want to go, you know? Reminds me of that joke of the, the guy who's laying in bed and his mother says, get up, it's time to go to church. The guy says, I don't want to go to church. The building's old. People are unfriendly and the music stinks. I'm not going today. Give me one reason I ought to go to church. She said, because you're the pastor. Now get up and go. <laughs> so here I am. <laughs> the year is 2008. Nationals Park was just built. The Washington Nationals baseball team was playing in D.C. after moving from Montreal. So my buddy, Vincent Anthony Godioso, and I got tickets. Now, he's just a little bit Italian, Vincent Anthony Godioso, and he was a D.C. cop. And we are kind of cheap when we don't want to pay 40 bucks to park, you know? So our buddies told us, you know, just find a spot in the neighborhood and, and go ahead and, and park there, and then you can walk. You save all that money. They said, just don't park. Whatever you do, don't park near Buzzard's Point. Anybody been to Buzzard's Point? Used to be a yacht club, but someone gave it a prophetic name, Buzzard's Point, because they knew that's what it would become. So Vinny and I were looking around. We went ahead and found a place to park. We parked the car. We got out. And we walked about a half a block, and I looked up at the sign. You know what I saw? Buzzard's Point. So as we walked to the stadium, we started to see mm, crowds of young men. And they were staring right through us. There was glass everywhere, broken glass, some fires going on, broken bricks. And, and there it was, and they were looking at us. And, and we kept walking a little faster, a little faster. And wouldn't you know, friendly group in Southeast D.C., they... They started escorting us, I guess it was, walking behind us. You ever been in a situation where you were really uncomfortable? That was this situation. Here I was in the city of D.C. walking toward the stadium, and now these guys had picked up some things in their hands, and, and Vinny and I were walking a little faster trying to get to the stadium. I, I turned to, to Vinny, and I, who was a police officer, did I mention that? And I asked him, I said, are you strapped? Are you packing? And he looked at me, and you know what he said? He said, I'd much rather take a beating than misuse my service weapon. <laughs> I said, Vin, maybe you'd rather take a beating, <laughs> but I'd rather you be strapped up and have your weapon with you. But you know what that showed my buddy Vinny? He was authentic. He was real. He was genuine. He was a cop that wasn't going to do anything that was wrong or inappropriate. And that's where we're at today. We're going to be in Galatians 1.11 and following, finishing up Galatians 1, where Paul says, I am the real deal. I am the genuine article. I am the authentic apostle. So we're going to be in, right there in Galatians 1, we're going to look back at Acts 9. People were saying, Paul, you're not a true apostle. Look at your past life, how you abused the church, how you abused Christians. You even torched them and killed them and put them in jail. I know your past sins, Paul. You can't be a real apostle. You can't be preaching the real gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Give me a break. And then I'm sure there was gossip and slander about him. Can you identify with Paul? 
when people say, you're a Christian. <laughs> I know your past life. I know your sins. And then there's gossip about you and slander. That's what Paul is going through here. And the gospel that you're preaching, it can't be true. Just faith? Just believe and God loves you? That's all you have to do is believe? That can't be the gospel. God initiates it. The salvation that you have, God initiates that salvation. He does it for us. His grace is better than our sin. Come on. That can't be the real gospel. But Paul is saying, I'm living for an audience of one. And I hope we can leave here today with our chest, chest held high saying, we live for an audience of one. Amen? We don't need other people's approval. He said there's treasure in this gospel. So I want to ask a question early on here today. If we were on trial for our Christianity, is there enough evidence to convict us of that? Can I ask that again? If we were on trial for our Christianity, is there enough evidence to convict us? What makes the Christian gospel so unique? There's a question we should ask ourselves. Well, first, can I suggest that a father would sacrifice his son to pay an enemy's debt is ridiculous, isn't it? A father would sacrifice his only son to pay a debt that his enemies had, give them salvation? I had neighbors in Manassas, Virginia for seven years from Iran. And one time he pulled me aside over the picket fence and he said, Kyle, you're a nice guy. But I got to tell you, this idea that we keep talking about that our God would sacrifice his son, that's deplorable. It's dishonorable. It's disrespectful. Our gospel's unique, amen? That a father would love you and me so much that he'd sacrifice an only son. The gospel's also unique in that there is a resurrection from the dead. Nobody else ever rose from the dead. Only Jesus rose from the dead. No other major religion says, oh yeah, check out our leader, man. He was dead, now he's alive and he's walking around. Only Christianity says that. Only Jesus claimed to raise up from the dead. He was seen by a lot of people. Another unique aspect of our gospel is that God provides salvation by his blood, not people provision. In other words, God provides it. We don't come up with it. We don't make it in some factory. We didn't sit down in some seminary or some uh, university and come up with, hey, here's the gospel. This makes a lot of sense. <laughs> that, that God would send his son to die for his enemy, and then all we have to do is go and believe and confess and put faith in him. Simple. That makes a lot of sense to a lot of people. It doesn't make any sense, does it? That's why it's unique. Also, grace means that we can do nothing to earn or merit our salvation. Other religions, if you think about it, they have sacraments, they have jihad, they struggle, both personal and public jihad. Some religions say we have to be good enough, we have to do certain things to be saved, or don't do certain things, and you're saved. You know religions like that? Some religions say free yourself of your desire, <laughs> and then you can enter into God's presence, or be God. Now, wait a minute. Freeing yourself of desire, isn't that a desire in and of itself? Just ask him. <laughs> Other religions say, you need to morph into our world with kindness. But no, Paul's gospel was different. If we think about it, it's been a distortion for some time, right? Think about Cain and Abel. Can we see that distortion? Here's Cain and Abel. God says, 
All you need to do by faith is bring a blood sacrifice. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin, right? Cain says, I got a good idea. Here's all my vegetables, okay? Here's my squash, my tomatoes, my cucumber. I'm going to bring you everything I have. What a distortion of the gospel. Why do we keep distorting the gospel? Think of the Tower of Babel. God says, I want you to love me, to worship me. I want you to give yourselves to me. The people in Babel say, let's do this. (laughs) Let's be like God and build this huge tower so that we can be like God and earn our own worth and value and significance and even our salvation. And then there was a guy in Acts 8 named Simon the sorcerer. He was looking around, seeing what all the apostles were doing, and he saw them baptizing people. When they were baptizing and believing in the gospel, they got the Holy Spirit. You know what he said? Cool beans. Can I buy that power from you? What? buy that power. The, the apostle said, this isn't something to purchase or buy. This is the true, genuine article. It's the real deal. It's the gospel of God. And that's what Paul says he's doing. He is a true apostle. So if you have your Bibles, look at Acts 1, 11, and 12. I want you to know, brothers, Paul says, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man Nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. You know what I love about these two verses? He says he didn't receive it from any man, but he got it from Jesus Christ. Wasn't Jesus a man? You know what he's suggesting here? Jesus isn't just any ordinary man. He's God-man. I didn't receive this from man, he's saying. I got it from God himself. So let's see what he's talking about. I don't want to assume that you know this historical context and what Paul's referring to. Let's go to Acts 9. But Saul still breathed threats. He was not a nice guy to the church. Threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest. He asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anybody belonging to the way, Christianity, men or women, anybody, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. How would you like to run into... To to Paul, if you were kicking around as a a believer in the first century. The next slide. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, that'd get my attention. That would probably today make ABC News, NBC News, Fox TV. It'd make everything, right? It'd be in all the papers. God appeared to this guy who was persecuting the church. And he said, who are you, Lord? And that voice said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Yeah. Hearing the voice, but seeing nobody. Saul rose from the ground, although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. He didn't have any sight for three days, and neither did he eat or drink. So that's what Paul is referring to when he says, I didn't receive my gospel, this gospel that I preached, from any man. It was God who appeared in heaven, and he blinded me, and I couldn't eat. The Greek text is fascinating. It says, the gospel was gospelized to me. It's a paraphrastic phrase where a participle is used with a finite verb. Paul's really saying, this gospel was really cool. It was unique. It was genuine. This gospel was gospelized to me. 
But the English translators don't translate that because it doesn't make any sense. Unless you can read it in the original and say, Paul's saying this is, this is weird. This is spectacular. This is something different. Something that you should listen to. And so in Ephesians 3, 2, and 6, we see him commenting on it. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. I have written briefly about it. But when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of man or other generations as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There's a Johnny Erickson quote that I want us to look at. Anybody know Johnny Erickson Tata, 17 years old? She dove into a lake. Broke her neck, became a paraplegic, became a speaker, author, artist. She said, the greatest good suffering can do for me is to increase my capacity for God. And I bet in those days when Paul was thinking about what he did to the church, what he did to Christians, and then stepping back as God appeared to him, I'm sure he felt this same way, that in my suffering now I have a phenomenal capacity for God. I thought about something else that we could talk about that's unique and, and different, something that's real and genuine. So I thought about the $1 bill. If you have a $1 bill in your pocket, you might want to look at it today. It hasn't changed since 1963. But what, what makes the $1 bill unique? Do you know it's not made of paper? We talk about paper money. The $1 bill is made 75% cotton and 25% linen. Average $1 bill its lifespan is 5.8 years. Did you know you can track a $1 bill through, quote, wheresgeorge.com and put the serial number in it? In the pyramid, there's Latin in the pyramid of a $1 bill. The top reads, Providence has favored our undertakings. At the bottom, a new order of the ages. 13, groupings of 13 are everywhere in the $1 bill. That's what makes it unique too, right? As you look at it, there's 13 of this and 13 of that. War and peace are represented on its seal, the same as at West Point, as the statue there. There's those two things, the peace and, and war. The number on the pyramid is, anybody know what the number on the pyramid is on the $1 bill? In case you have a counterfeit, 1776. And one other thing that makes the dollar bill unique if you look at the fourth row of the pyramid on a $1 bill, there is a picture of, anybody know? A smiling ghost is on the back. That's what makes the $1 bill unique. And that's what Paul is saying. My God knows ways looking at this. You see it? You need a magnifying glass back there, right? So I would like us to think about examining the gospel in such a way. Is the gospel unique? Is it real? Jump down to Acts, Acts 1, 13, and 14. For you have heard in my previous way of life in Judaism how intensely I persecuted the church. The church of God, I tried to destroy it. Verse 14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. What is Paul saying here? 
He said, well, since Jesus appeared to me, I don't need people's approval. I don't need to seek other people's affirmation. I receive this gospel gospelized from Jesus. His actions and deeds were not aimed or focused on pleasing people. So here he says, I persecuted and destroyed it, the church. The Greek there very literally means laid waste or to ravage. It's used of armies who would tear down cities, tear down walls, tear down even fields and destroy them and burn them. Paul's saying, I tried to ravage the church. Paul would stalk, he would hunt you, he would stone you, think of Stephen. He would arrest you, he would imprison you, and if you were a Pete offender, he would hunt you down and gut you like a fish, and he was proud of it. This is the guy that God called. He said, I was passionate for the traditions of the fathers. He's referring to oral law. Think if you're, if you're a student in Hebrew studies, he's talking about the Mishnah, the Haftorah, the Talmud. Laws upon laws upon laws of oral tradition added to Moses. You see, Moses, the written Torah, the written Bible, talks about our sin, which leads us to grace and salvation. That's the gospel. But the Jews, with Paul there leading them, they came up with all these seven, 800 laws to add to the gospel. Why do we keep adding to something that's so simple and loving from a God who cares for us? Well, the only thing I can think about is the comment that Sir Isaac Newton made. (laughs) Sir Isaac Newton said, you know, we can calculate the movements of the heavenly bodies, but we cannot calculate the madness of man. (laughs) Sir Isaac Newton said, I don't know. Here's the gospel laid out, and we just want to add 800 more laws through the Haftarah and the Talmud and the Mishnah. Doesn't make any sense. Paul says, that's what I was zealous about. That's what I gave my life to. You see, Paul was distracted by all those rules and laws. He was distracted to all those rules and laws, and he was addicted to them. But then in verses 15 and 16, notice he said he was called to preach. But when God, who set me apart from birth, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't consult with any man. Paul here says that I was called to preach. Again, he says it's from my birth, literally from my mother's womb, the Greek reads. Each of us can find things that we can do that nobody else can do, amen? Paul knew his calling. I'm called to preach. He called me to be his son, and now I'm preaching. Can I suggest to you that there are things in the church in your world, in your workplace, that you can do that no one else can do? You're unique. And God's called you for those purposes. As we think about those things, it shows us what the gospel does. It just doesn't save us from our sin for eternity. But it makes us, can I say, employable in the church, effective in the church to care for each other, to build each other up, to edify one another in love and good works. Paul talks in language like, I want to provoke you to love and to good works. Isaiah 49.1 says, Before I was born, the Lord called me from birth. He made mention of my name. I want you to know today that God loves you, and he, he knew you before you were born, and he's called you his son and daughter. He sent his son to die for you. That's the gospel, and called you to serve him and, and love him in a unique and special way. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
I set you apart before you were even born. Boy, that's secure, isn't it, Sal? I just feel like God really loves me. Not just he went to the cross, but even before I was born. Paul himself said, Romans 1.1, I, I was called to be an apostle, and I was set apart for the gospel of God. Paul connects here. Did you notice it? He's connecting his conversion with his service, right? His conversion with his service. Imagine if you were going out for a football team. Oh, remember those two-a-days in high school? Here you are in August going to your two-a-day. You're sweating. You're dying. You're throwing up. It's terrible. Imagine going through all that all summer long, and then coach says, okay, great practice. You did great all summer. Uh, you're going to sit on the second uh, end of the bench there over there and watch everybody else play. So that's ridiculous. That's awful. But in the church, that's like that, right? In too many churches, we have 80% of the people sitting watching while 20% of the people are actually in the game. But God's called us and saved us so we can serve, not just be saved, right? not just watch. Paul says this himself in Ephesians 2. We usually memorize Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your doing. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And then we stop. But what's verse 10 say? For we are his workmanship. Doesn't that feel good? <laughs> not only did God save you, but you're his workmanship. He's crafted you and formulated you, created you in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How are those good works feeling? You walking in them? They feel like, yeah, I've got a purpose. I've got a significance. I'm doing great things in the kingdom of God. I'm loving life. Boy, last week, great service last week. I overheard a conversation between uh, two ladies in our church. And one lady said, I just want to thank you. Because when I came, you're just... Your smile and your warmth and the way you received me, the way you helped me feel at home, man, I just wanted to come back. That meant a lot to me. It meant a lot to both of the ladies involved. And the lady who said, oh, all I did was smile. <laughs> all I did was be friendly. All I did was say, I'm glad you're here. That's the kind of ministry Paul's talking about. He didn't just call me to be saved. He called me to love each other. And so we've got so many places to serve in our church and all the branches, Sal, right? But here at Beacon in the soundboard to do what Sal and I do every week, we're looking for people to do that, to, to usher, to greet children's church. All these areas that you could be using your gifts, your abilities, your uniqueness to build the body of Christ up. You say, well, I don't know what my gifts are. How do I find those? I went to the library. There's no, <laughs> there's no encyclopedia that tells me what my gifts are, how I find them. Where am I well, can I give you a little secret? 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. We don't have time today, but 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, they list all the gifts. And if you don't find your gift, uh, talk to Sal. He'll help you work through that. And then in verse 17 and 19, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, Paul says, to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Now, anybody know that part of the world? I thought I ought to explain that because I don't know that part of the world. He goes, <laughs> Paul says, I was called by God and then I went to Arabia. Now, what is Arabia? Well, if you remember I Dream of Genie or any of those shows, right? The Arabian Desert. He went to the desert. <laughs> There's nobody there for three years. And he talked to a couple of nomads maybe. He went there to get his head straight. Immediately, the text says, 
he goes to Arabia, the desert area. And then he goes to Jerusalem. Why? To talk to James. But it's not to initiate his ministry, he says. He says, I don't need them to authenticate my apostleship because the gospel was gospelized to me, remember? And then he goes after three years, he goes and moves on to Syria and Cilicia. Now again, you probably didn't wake up this morning saying, oh yeah, yeah, I remember. Paul went after three years to Syria and Cilicia. And I know why, honey. Do you remember why Paul went there? Well, why do you think? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> you know why he went there? It was Paul's home province. It's in the area of, of what we call today Turkey or Asia Minor, where all the wars are going on. It was Paul's native province and site of his first missionary journey. It was his hometown. So after he goes and talks to, to James and to Peter, because there they were in Jerusalem, the center of Judaism and Christianity, that's why he went there, just to check the boxes. Then he goes back into his hometown and begins his ministry to the Gentiles. And then do you notice how long he talks to James and Peter? 15 days. Now, I don't want to assume, again, you got up uh, this morning over your breakfast and said, yeah, 15 days, sweetheart. Why do, you think, why do you think Paul spent 15 days there? There must be some reason for that. Well, I can suggest a couple to you from all the commentaries I read this week. Some say maybe it's the 15 Psalms of Ascent that he's referring to. In Psalm 120 to 134, we find 15 psalms of ascent. So that what Paul is saying is Judaism is transitioning to Jesus. Judaism is turning now into Jesus as Messiah in the, these psalms of ascent. 15 psalms of ascent going up to Jerusalem. Now he's gone up to Jerusalem to meet with James and Peter to begin his ministry. To show that he's authentic and real. In Acts I'm sorry, in Galatians 1, 20 through 23, he says, it's no lie. It's no lie. When you used to make, anybody make clay or pottery? Some people used to make clay. In the ancient times, they would make a beautiful, beautiful cup, vase, a bowl. And you know what they would put in it? S-I-N-C-E-R-E. Sincere. We use the term sincere, right? Do you know what sincere means? Sin without, sere blemish. So sincere means without blemish. He says sincerely, I'm not lying. It's sincere. No blemish. He says God praised, God is praised because of me. I'm the real deal. I'm a genuine article. I'm an authentic apostle. This is the real gospel, he says. Look at verse 20. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Because later I went to Syria, I went to Cilicia, and I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They wouldn't even recognize me, Paul said. They only heard the report. The man who formerly preached and persecuted us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. It's only good news by which we are saved. This gospel that Paul's preaching is the only good news. Now, in hospice, I often hear this phrase. You hear this? You probably hear this in the world at your workplace, too, or in the neighborhood. Ah, we're all looking for the same God. We're all going to the same place. We all believe the same thing. So it really doesn't matter all the details, right? 
I got thinking about that. Sometimes I think about that a lot. So if I said to you, hey, how do you get to Cincinnati? <laughs> and you say, ah, it doesn't matter. Go ahead and get on I-95 North. Get on 84 East. Ah, go ahead and get on 87 North. And eventually it all goes to the same place, right? It's all the same thing. But can I suggest to you today, in the risk of offending some, that Jesus is not so inclusive. Jesus said that he was unique and different. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father but by me. He didn't say that he is a way, or there are many ways. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one way to get to the Father through Jesus' blood, through the gospel that Paul is speaking. You see, Jesus is unique. The gospel is unique. Jesus is more beautiful than religious rules and laws. Jesus' grace and love are more precious than any church membership. His mercy is more lovely than offerings. Jesus' death and resurrection is more magnificent than any perfect church attendance that we might have. The cross is more miraculous than any creed or sacrament. His purity is more beautiful than our good deeds. Jesus' forgiveness is more attractive than church titles. His righteousness is more incredible and beautiful than any correct liturgy we could have. It's his blood. It's his blood. It's his blood. Amen? That's the gospel of God. And that is what Paul is saying, that it's unique, it's genuine, it's real, and it stands the test of time. And Paul says, I'll live for an audience of one under that principle. How about us? As we think about concluding in this text and applying something from it, can I ask you, can I ask myself, how can we show the uniqueness and reality of the gospel by how God has morphed us and changed our lives? That's a great question. How would you show that uniqueness and reality of the gospel by how God has changed your life and morphed you? Second, in what way is your experience with Christ a witness to others? In what way? Oh, those aren't, they're different than the other voices I usually hear, right? <laughs> In what way is your experience with Christ a witness to others? You see, when we live for an audience of one, others will take notice. So can I encourage you to leave this building today with your head held high, knowing that God's called you to salvation by faith, through grace, by his shed blood? You know that, and you know that God's called you as his son and his daughter, and he's prepared service for you to love and care for others and to build others up and edify them. And that you can live for an audience of one with no fear of people, <laughs> no fear of others and what they say, their opinions, their gossip, their slander, because there's one that we want to please. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us so much even to the point that you knew us when we were in our mother's womb and you called us then and knew that we needed your death on the cross, your shed blood for our salvation. God, we thank you too that you put your spirit inside of us so that he convicts us of sin, so that he leads us into truth, so that he equips us for service to build up the church and your kingdom.
God, there are some in this room, I'm sure, that aren't even aware of the unique and precious gifts that they have. So God, I pray you would awaken those gifts in them and help them to use those gifts to build one another up, to love others so that people can understand and see your love through us. God, we ask that we would be your hands, your feet, your mouths, your instrument of God, kingdom of God. Help us with confidence and with boldness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.